This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. This week we have on history and law professor at Yale, Samuel Moyne, to talk about his new book on war and its humanization. It's called Humane, and it's really interesting stuff. Okay, uh, we are here today with Samuel Moyne, uh, back again. We're so excited to have him back again. Uh, Henry R. Luce, professor of jurisprudence at Yale and also professor of history at Yale. He's written a number of books on you know diverse topics ranging from intellectual history to the public memory of the Holocaust to uh, notably a trilogy on human rights. And then he's back today. We, we, we asked him when he was on last time if he'd come back, and he said yes, and he's a man true to his word, um, <laughs> to discuss his latest book, um, which I just finished this week. It's really outstanding. Everybody should read it. Um, it's called Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, out by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, um, just in September this year. So welcome back, Sam. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. All right. So... This book um, engages no less an important a topic than war and peace. Um, and it's kind of fitting, I guess, that you start with Leo Tolstoy there. Um, but, you know, you go far beyond just using him as a prop to sort of talk about these themes. You make an argument about some of his evolving views being sort of particularly relevant to our contemporary situation. And could you explain why there's a pretty big gap between what he said and then why it's become particularly relevant now? So, you know, I, I uh, chose to begin with Leo Tolstoy because he he was present at the creation of what we now call international humanitarian law, the attempt to forge a, an international legal order that reduces the horrors of war. Uh, and what what struck me is that he was bitterly critical of that dream. Um, and it it was shocking because, you know, in my lifetime, it's it's been presented to me first as a student um, as one of the most important moral projects around to, you know, take kind of violence and see if it can be made less le less you know consequential in, in its suffering especially for civilian innocence um and so i looked into you know tolstoy's views and and of course some of his views haven't aged well notably um at least his character's view prince andre in war and peace that leaving war brutal would leave us better off because wars would then break out less regularly. Um, but then Tolstoy evolved um, and he developed, uh, I think, a more interesting and more plausible critique of humane war uh, to the effect that um, making it humane would run the risk of entrenching it. And that, that, that worry of his, um, I think, was prescient. It didn't apply for a long time, but in our lifetimes, it's become more relevant, as you say, because we've lived through a period in which the war on terror was reinvented from a brutal form uh, to a, a, 
a more humane form, at least in the way that Barack Obama uh, changed it um, and justified it and legitimated it. And so suddenly Tolstoy uh, became, I think, you know, the, the best critic um, of America's ongoing global belligerency. And I thought it would be worth starting with him for that reason, too. There's this part in that first chapter that you talk about, um, what, what, what grabbed me at least, was his argument about the slaughter of animals, that that's kind of like the best analogy to how right. things can get entrenched. Could you ex right. just explain that thinking and that logic a little bit? Sure. So, so, I, so it, it, Tolstoy kind of offered, I think, two fundamental comparisons uh, to help orient our moral sensibilities um, to, so that we make sure that we are aware not just of the benefits, but of the costs of humanizing war. And his first analogy was to um, the, the project in, in Tolstoy's past of making chattel slavery more humane. And of course, it's true that there was a big legal project for a long time to try to create humane slavery. Um, not challenging the fact of slavery, um, not engaging in abolition, but engaging in what you know we today would call harm reduction. Um, and and Tolstoy looks back and basically says, look at look at the strategic choice that reformers made back then, um, giving up a higher end of challenging the institution of chattel slavery and working with slaveholders on, on, let's say, common ground um, to make slavery more humane. And he said, this is a direct analogy to what reformers do today of working to find common ground with states who will never give up war, but may agree to make it more humane. And then the dis remaining dispute is about like how humane does war need to get? Are we there yet? And actually, I think that analogy anticipates the most fundamental kind of disputes of, of the war on terror, where there was never a fundamental challenge to the war on terror in America. But a lot of folks, including human rights lawyers, operated in this zone of compromise with the state around having endless war and trying to make it less cruel. Okay, and then we get to the second analogy, which is not about the activist, but about, let's say, the audience. And it's this analogy that Tolstoy pursues between humanizing war and humanizing the slaughter of non-human animals. And he basically says, look at people, we know them even today, who eat meat, and yet it's important to them that their meat has been slaughtered more humanely. Um, and Tolstoy basically accuses such people of bad faith. They're, 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 they're taking the consolation that their, their, their prey is, is being killed less uh, violently as like an excuse um, that the, the, the actual eating of the animals is morally okay. Um, and for, for Tolstoy, he became the most famous vegetarian globally of his period. It wasn't okay. And in fact, the worry was that this, this bad faith 
wasn't just a moral error, wasn't just about self-deception where we say we're bad people, but we think we're good uh, because we've softened the blow of our of our violence. Um, but it actually like worsened the evil because obviously if if you think you're good people, you, you might then tolerate the extension and expansion of the of the violent practice. And, you know, it, it does seem fair to say that the humanization of slaughterhouses allowed um, meat eating to expand uh, and more animals to die than would have had it been left brutal and had we been forced to accept just the sheer violence uh, of our, our relationship to the animals we eat. Right. I mean, anticipating like a Portlandia as well, right? Sure, <laughs> that sure. Kind of, kind of argument. Sure. How and again, we could come out in different places on that, but the analogy is meant to be with humane war, where I think right. a lot of Americans listen to Barack Obama telling them, it's you're, you're okay because you're no longer Bush's subjects, you're mine. And unlike Bush, I'm not, I'm not allowing the war to be brutal. I'm making it moral. So, you know, the, the anti-war movement to the extent it existed, which was minimal in this country, cratered because Obama came to power. And then he kept it in control by offering Americans a bargain. I'll make war humane and you let it go on. And it has gone on. Is that specifically in reference to the drone policy? So he already kind of gestured in this direction um, as he was institutionalizing the drone policy. It's just that no one knew it in his um, really kind of amazing um, Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech in late 2009. But then four years later, he rolled out the formal policy around targeted killing, which included uh, drone strikes. And, and there, too, in that a 2013 speech he also really centered the whole argument on the same deal that war is is the lesser evil uh in a world of terror but our virtue uh is that we we bring humane violence unlike other states and other presidents so, I mean, there's a couple of things. Um, I read uh, Dexter Filkin's uh, review in The New Yorker um, of your book, um, and I'd love to get, you know, your response to it. But but one of the things in terms of just like the framing of the book that I found to be very interesting and which I would imagine some people would push back on, um, a la Filkin's, um, would be that it's kind of like a very Foucauldian position that you're kind of taking, right? That that the target of war is dis decreasingly the destruction of the body per se, but it's the regulation yes. through intimidating supervision, right? right. And, and, and then as you say, it's no less sinister for that, right? Um, and I'm wondering what would be the response to someone who would say, well, okay, well, isn't control better than death, right? Like, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that a sort of better outcome? So if we sort of right. narrow... Um, right. We're not we're not doing the firebombing of Tokyo. Right. This is not Curtis LeMay in control. We've got Barack Obama in control, whoever it may be. Right. right? Then that's right. better. Um, are, would you say they're kind of missing the point of your argument that this is more about war and peace rather than better war? Um, what, what would you say? Sure. So I think they're missing the point in a couple of respects. So already Obama basically said, look, the alternative to 
the humane war I'm bringing you is brutal war. Uh, and who wouldn't choose humane war? And of course, if that's the choice, I'm, I'm with him. And Filkins basically, as someone who's reported on American war, but has no problem with American hegemony, um, it indeed closes the review by saying we need more of it with the emergent Cold War with China, basically says the critique can't work because the only alternative to the humane war Americans have invented would be more brutal war. And who wants that? Well, we know that actually there's a, a third alternative. Um, you know, we can order off the menu that these folks are bringing us with two options and say, no, actually, the alternative to humane war isn't brutal war, but less war. Um, you know, a radical pacifist would say no war, like Tolstoy. I'm not there, but I think, you know, given that every American war in my lifetime has made the world worse, could we just have a few less of them? Um, and so uh, I, I think it's, you know, I don't think Filkins really confronts that position except to just assume that American war is baked in or is a good thing. And that I don't think either either position is really sustainable based on what we've seen now on on the Foucauldian point, there is, I, I really intended the beginning of the book to like mime the beginning of Foucault's Discipline and Punish, where he starts out with the, you know, execution through dismemberment, you know, grisly practice uh, of the, a regicide under the old regime, and then contrasts it with the new humane prison and says it got, things got worse. <laughs> now, I don't say that. And I actually try to um, place my normative kind of arguments um, more, maybe make them more explicit than Foucault did. You know, he was always tagged as someone who either was crypto normative or kind of didn't, um, wouldn't, would, didn't have any kind of ethical perspective. And um, I just try to say, look, you know, humane war is better than brutal war, but it's not costless, not just because um, war continues, but because it, it takes this disturbing new form, which is about um, uh, uh, the kind of domination of some over others. And if we think of policing in the American urban context, you know, where there's a parallel debate about harm reduction, um, you know, the response to brutal police violence ought not to be um, like more humane policing, but less policing. And, you know, my claims are exactly parallel in the war context. The trouble is that in the international context, you have folks like Filkins who basically say, yeah, we, we ought to move from war to policing as if we weren't having like a debate in the United States to the effect that policing is violent. And to the extent you humanize it, it's still about control and domination of some people over others in a highly racialized uh, situation, which, of course, the world is even more so with its even vaster hierarchies of, of power and wealth. Uh, so I think, um, you know, there's a limited parallel with Foucault. It's, it's just that I think that humanization is a good thing, except for insofar as it conceals 
a, a new form of domination that it helps create that we should also oppose with all of our forces. Yeah, I think one of the things that you just pointed out about the say the, let's just call it the the Filkins uh, position for for the sake of ease here is is a lot of sort of assumptions, right? And and in people who study the police, there's a sort of uh, the analysis is that they call it sort of police fetishism, that but for the police there would be no order, right? So that that the world is not imaginable without the police and in the same way without american hegemony you know how could you know the, the quote-unquote liberal liberal order and quote-unquote right. rules-based uh, international order right. work right um and you're exactly right because guess you know with the cops what do they have now less lethal weapons <laughs> like, like, right. you know we're gonna we're gonna use tasers sure. we're gonna use these sort of things it's Correct. not gonna kill people but and, we're gonna use body, them all the time and body cameras to like Absolutely. make sure right Absolutely. right 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 um okay so we've got this frame like the periodization of the book is really interesting you're starting in like the late 19th century um and and we we have these sort of different moments where it's almost these breakthroughs and there's talk about, okay, maybe we should just, you know, outlaw war. And, you know, there's elements, you know, Kellogg Briand, you mentioned, but you know, that's a really about um, a sort of transatlantic white community, not fighting with one another rather than everybody else. How is it the case that um, it comes to, Weirdly enough, the 1970s again, Sam. <laughs> Not my fault. You know, look, like, you know, human rights, 1970s, Sam Moyne born in the 1970s, yeah, you know, all, all history is hum uh, contemporary history. Thanks for coming on. Um, no, but, but um, how, how is it that we get this shift to humane warfare, say, after Vietnam, as you put it, as a pivot, right? And that's very interesting reading of My Lai in, in there. So if you could just right. talk about that a little bit. All right. So, I mean, it, 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 the book does tell a relatively long story to isolate a sh the short story of, of, of the humanization of war in our times. And, I, and, and really, I want to look back before the 1970s to establish a few different perspectives. One is just how open relative to our times the, 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 the critique of and debate around the humanization of war was before it happened. Um, and you know, part of the reason was that before 1945, um, in the North Atlantic, there there were, you know, really active and rising peace uh, movements and calls for international peace that that trumped the agenda of making war humane, which didn't really get that far for a long time. Um, now, as you say, that that sets up a kind of dream, I think, for our own future of a more peaceful globe. But sadly, it, it's in, in the 1940s, it sets up an American hegemony that brings European peace after two world wars, white peace, which is what many peace activists hope to achieve, actually, um, at the price of making America uh, a, a, a global hegemon committed to the kinds of brutal uh, in, wars that European empires had long fought. And of course, America had as well. It's just in a more restricted spaces, its own continent, Latin America, the Philippines. After 1945, you see the globalization under American auspices of kind of wars um, without limits that had been fought. Those same places just by other states, European 
empire. So something is crucially about the 1970s that that I, I try to demonstrate does lead to a shift in the content of the rules around war, finally, and around um, kind of who's in who's covered by them and how seriously they're taken. So let me explain kind of what I see as the, the sort of trifecta of, of, of factors. First and foremost, I think, is decolonization. That the, the, the number of states between the 50s and, and the 70s practically quadruples. And of course, these are states that are, are, are made up of peoples who have borne the brunt of brutal war for centuries. Actually, their main agenda is to intensify the white peace agenda so that it's actually deracialized and global. Uh, because the UN Charter, which had secured white peace under American auspices, left a lot of, uh, of war in the global south uh, perpetrated by great powers. Um, but as a subsidiary agenda, these same new states um, that are decolonized did um, propose to make war more humane than it had been. Because why not? If, if interventions are going to continue, at least there ought to be uh, stricter rules. And Europeans are behind this because, of course, they've given up their empires. They don't regularly soil their hands, allowing Americans to do so and can set up a kind of moral, moral rectitude that's very convenient uh, since it's easy to be moral when you're not uh, committing the violence that you have for centuries. Finally, Americans are shamed by Vietnam. And it's true that um, the Vietnam War breaks the liberal consensus in American politics. It allows for a revival of anti-war politics, which the Cold War had killed. And My Lai, which is revealed late in the war, kind of is, is, is really significant in my story because it's, an, it's the revelation of atrocity of non-white people that is you know, one of the first such revelations to matter um, uh, to uh, transatlantic audiences. And, and yet it throws fuel on the fire of the pre-existing anti-war movement and helps bring the war to an end. Still, the fact that you know, atrocity matters in that respect affects um, the rise of a new breed of humanitarians uh, that, you know, who's like we really haven't seen um, as anti-war movements subside, um, as George McGovern, the last American peace candidate, uh, you know, crashes, humanitarians begin to appear who say, we'll bracket whether wars ought to be just in order to keep America's wars humane. The military itself understands that there are new conditions for legitimation of American war and agrees out of ethical concern or optical concern also to make American war more humane. Um, and so this just sets up the kind of, I think, sinister dynamics after 9-11, where you get another revelation of atrocity, but this time without anti-war pressure it ends up helping remove the bug of atrocity from America's ongoing aggression, like the opposite of the effect in Vietnam. And so Vietnam is really critical in my story, both as a counterpoint to what happens after 9-11 and for making 
that story possible by creating the conditions for the humanization of American war uh, that was unprecedented up to that point. Tony, jump in with your questions. Yeah, I've got a couple of things. Um, so I'll jump around. But one sure. thing that struck me when you were talking is, uh, you know, we're talking about Vietnam War being the where this more humane war approach came out of. But I'm wondering why didn't it come out of World War II when we were dropped when we dropped nucle nuclear bombs on Japan? Good. What was that about? Good. It's a great question. Or you could add Korea. Um, yeah. And one thing I try to do is just illustrate how, you know, air war really does emerge out of in European empires out of colonial, um, you know, uh, control and Americans, you know, uh, adopt it in a similar spirit and end up deploying it not only in the European theater, but in Pacific theater during World War Two and 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 beyond through Korea and Vietnam, where there's really unrestricted aerial bombardment. Uh, direct targeting of civilians, morale bombing. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, I mean, it's a great question why the moral turn happens later, not immediately. I mean, there are, I do record the voices of some who protest aerial bombardment, um, but they they lose. And, you know, it, it we just should just recall how late in the day it's totally acceptable in the mainstream for Americans to think it was necessary and just to um, to not just um, send nuclear bombs to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but engage in widespread um, you know conventional bombing, um, fire bombing of of Japanese cities in which many more died than it. Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, and the kind of it, like just extraordinarily grisly aerial bombardment of Korea mm. uh, and, 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 and Vietnam too. So I, I think, you know, there's, there's a story about American patriotism there. I think there's also a story about the changing memory of World War II. I talk about how this period after Vietnam when Americans are finally shamed by American war because of activists who have uh, indicted its aggression and atrocity for the first time, really, um, you know, it, it coincides with new memories of World War II in which suddenly it's not a, just a, a righteous and just war um, to put down fascists, but the, the Jews died. And that had not been like all that compelling to that many people other than the Jews themselves and some allies during World War II or after when actually the you know Jews were abandoned by America in World War II to a significant extent. And, and few Americans or people across the Atlantic really cared much about what we now take to be one of the central moral realities of World War II. But in the 1960s and 70s, you have new generations that say no what's most at stake in war is the plight and and especially the the genocide of victims 
And it, it really does reprogram us culturally so that when we think of war, you know, as the Cold War ends and beyond, we really, for, for at least, you know, an elite mainstream, Holocaust memory has redefined the moral stakes of war. Um, my trouble is that it, it redefined it so that what prior generations cared about, whether you have war, is less significant than what you, what you do when you fight it. And so it, 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 you know, it's very important that we, we look in a way critically at this moral reorientation because it did lead people to want to edit out brutality of war, but it, it led them to forget in ways that proved fateful after September 11th that war is also a crime. Hmm. And in fact, if you interdict and prevent war, you automatically interdict and prevent war crimes, but the reverse is not true. Yeah, I find it interesting because we're we're obviously pretty numb to war because we don't see it; they hide it from us. And and there's a there's a lot of um, propaganda machines on both both sides that kind of like it. I, I thought that to be most interesting when at the end of the Afghanistan war, or what we will declare the end. Right. When the drone strike happened that killed the family, there is a huge outpour of anger and disgust. And what I don't understand is that's been going on. Right. Like right. how, what is it about, what is it about that one thing that finally, and, and it'll be gone tomorrow. We'll, we'll still right. be drawing people. Right. And nobody will care, but it's something right. that's been going right. on and, and actually right. much worse than that. That's, that's a small one. I agree. Um, so w w what do you think that's equated to? So I think it as, as, as kind of like retrospective analysts, you know, not living the experience, you know, but looking back at it, I think we can say that not just during the war on terror, but in prior wars, atrocity becomes um, outrageous under very specific conditions. Um, why was it that, Milai and Abu Ghraib had such big effects in the American public. Well, it's because the wars were going south in 1969 and in 2004 when those atrocities were revealed. Um, and, you know, we can, we can, I think, get really glum about this fact, um, or we can try to take advantage of it because even when you do get emerging dissent, it really matters whether you go on to end the war or edit out the brutality, which um, was one was the path pursued after Milai and the other after Abu Ghraib. But, you know, I can think of three drone strikes that um, as as those emerged kind of in especially in in the Obama years that that drew attention in the midst of hundreds and, of course, thousands of deaths. Mm -hmm. The first would be. The, the killing of Anwar al-Awlaki and, and maybe, although not really, a couple weeks later, his son, um, both American citizens. And for that reason, some on the right got really upset, not just the left. And there was a stir um, and there was a politics around how that had been authorized under the Constitution. And there we have to say it, it is staggering that the first drone strike that really got a lot of attention got it because it concerned the death of an American. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's significant. The second drone strike that I think got a lot of attention um, 
was many years later, and it was the the killing by drone of Iranian general uh, 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 Qasem Soleimani. And my analysis would be, and I do say this in the book, that that got attention because Trump did it. Uh, and 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 in general, there was a kind of let's call it mainstream discourse of 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 Trump's you know a beyond the pale immorality, even when he was doing things that were routine. Uh, now, of course, there were some distinct features of the Soleimani strike, and we can get into those. But as you say, it it doesn't address the puzzle of why this one raise the hackles of some people when the institutionalization of the drone program itself was accepted. And then you get to the third one, um, which I think has to do with just the extraordinary bout of imperial nostalgia that had gotten awakened the prior couple of weeks as the Afghan withdrawal occurred and as, as, as Kabul fell and the Taliban completed their conquest or reconquest of the country. And, you know, there's there there i think i i don't i think it was noble that people got concerned about all three of these drone strikes and the last one for sure but i don't think we can understand why it was exceptionally um noticed compared to the whole program without taking account of like the politics of the moment um where you have like this rare attention Mm. to american war even as as you know, Joe Biden is, you know, allegedly ending it, which, as you said, wasn't, isn't exactly. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because Milai itself is, you know, I think I remember, I forget the historian, but there's a chapter on Milai in one of uh, the voluminous literature on, on, on Vietnam. Yep. And the, the title of the chapter is an operation, not an aberration, right? So right. that's something like Milai itself was not that out of bounds. It was happening. There's free fire zones. There's you right, know, the, right. the, the body Nick count, Turse, all of that. You know, there, everything I mean, that moves. All of, yeah, all uh, yeah. of that's going. Yeah, exactly. Nick Turse, thank you. Um, right. So that it's interesting that, that Milai would then, you know, jump on to public consciousness right. in such a way. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I touch on it and I think there's far more to say, but like there, there is atrocity consciousness throughout the Vietnam years. And in the early part of it, 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 it kind of centers on Dow chemicals and, and the napalming of babies. And I think that did cause Lyndon Johnson in particular to take a huge hit. Um, and, and then there were some other atrocity stories, some, uh, you know, some true, some false, um, but there are a lot of stories that didn't get told. Now that doesn't mean that Milai was absolutely representative of everyday life. It wasn't, but, um, there were a lot of atrocities in Vietnam and we do have to attend to what are the conditions in which an exceptionally bad one, even if there were a lot of other atrocities does get attention because we have to be self-critical as Americans who, you know, are subject to media dynamics and su- and subject to cultural dynamics that are leading us to ignore a lot of things and then attend to 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 kind of rare instances when when there's a convergence of factors that favor that um, that attention. And maybe I wonder if part of the Vietnam being kind of the the start of a lot of this is two 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 parts. One, 
the the emergence of video, more more high end video cameras there where you're seeing it, but two, and I don't know this, and you guys would know better than me. Pre Vietnam, were there was there a lot of um, record where soldiers were actually committing crimes on their own in terms of rape and and you know killing of babies and revenge murders? I, I'm not sure, but I know that that was pretty prevalent in Vietnam, and I wonder if that is part of it too. Where actually we're like, yeah, they're they're going nuts and and really bad stuff's happening. And I wonder if the, the shame of that was part of it as well. You know, there's got to be a media story. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, the chilling truth is that Americans were made aware of the brutality in their name. And it's just they didn't care mm. until the war became unpopular. I mean, if you go back and read Jonathan Shell's classic reporting for The New Yorker in the early part of the war, I mean, he's outraged by what he sees, but he's exposed by the military to like episodes of like the horrendous mistreatment of you know of prisoners of war you know like he's with soldiers to kick the shit out of prisoners of war in his presence and he reports it and no one really cares and i i think you know you the the reason and it and it gets at something that's like difficult and i try to tell which we've already alluded to is that decolonization did lead to a relative deracialization of world order. And, you know, the story I try to tell in the book is that um, most atrocity was accepted by transatlantic citizens because it was committed against non-white and non-Christian others. It's not that they didn't know about it. It's that it was morally negligible. And it's not like world order was deracialized, but the war on terror was significantly invented by African-Americans. And we, we have to reckon with this fact that, you know, the, the, the American army is integrated, uh, you know, by Harry Truman. Uh, and there are Asians fighting in, in, in U.S. forces in all, all of the post-war conflicts. But you know, historians tell us that the way that Koreans and Vietnamese were treated uh, was horrendous in part because of the persisting racialization of our enemies. I'm not saying that the war on terror wasn't racialized too. And obviously Islamophobia has played a major role in the way the war on terror unfolded. However, um, it still matters that George W. Bush comes out and says, we're not at war with religion. You know, we represent the Abrahamic, you know, traditions of justice, and that includes Muhammad and Islam. And it really matters that, you know, Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell are inventing the war on terror and Barack Obama takes on on board the project of making it humane and sustainable. So I think somehow it, it, it's it, it's that we've got to tell a story less about media and more about who is seems morally relevant over time. And it, it's 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 that war had to become humane because it came to matter that non-whites and non-Christians um, who had been treated, you know, horrendously for centuries um, weren't just visible, but mattered in the first place in new ways. So that brings me to a question about um, 
some one thing that I noticed in the book is this sort of dance between cultural change and legal shifts. Yeah. And I'm wondering, this is like kind of a chicken and the egg question, but but to to what extent are cultural shifts being reflected in legal agendas or is it the other way around or is it somewhere in between depends on the situation i'm just kind of wondering about that oh no it's a fantastic question you know the truth is um i you know i'm a law professor these days and like i i i for the first time i'm trying to do my job which is to study <laughs> law but it's not because i think it's important um i think it's 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 very important that it provides us a sub at a, a, a a kind of a way to get into these topics but it's very different to claim that it's driving change um i do think it's very significant about ourselves in this era that we have debates about not so much war and peace but about atrocity and brutality in legal terms and of course you know we had the torture debate on, in in a moral framework but you know, the Geneva Conventions, which were at that time old, had never gotten as much public play, including when torture was much worse in the Vietnam War. Um, and that's partly because, you know, Lyndon Johnson and his, his stewards said, yeah, we can, we have no problem with the Geneva Conventions. And in fact, we're going to force um, South Vietnam to adhere to them, too. And that's because they knew that they could be violated with impunity and no one would care. When John Yu shredded the Geneva Conventions after 9-11, I think it represented the fact that war had been legally humanized and there had been a, there was a new expectation around American war. And um, it, 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 it prompted a kind of unprecedented amount of attention to law in the war on terror. Still, I mean, I, you know, I'm not at all claiming that law caused anything. I'm, I, I think culture and politics um, are the lead variables and law the lag variable. Um, and so uh, I hope I don't imply otherwise. I, I do think it's an interesting um, topic or let's say aperture onto kind of the moral and political choices that are made because, you know, we don't know what significant actors think. Um, what we do know is whether what what legal rules they propound and what legal rules they they try to follow and so i think it really matters that when obama comes to pick up his nobel peace prize inventing the you know permanent war in that same year he name checks the founder uh from switzerland uh of you know international humanitarian law and he says we're law-abiding precisely when it comes to the Geneva Conventions and the other precious standards that limit, you know, brutality in war. And same four years later when he says, you know, we, we, we're, we, we have made war not just humane, but humane according to legally applicable standards. And that tells us something about not just our leaders, but what, what the way that we've made law central to our moral consciousness. Right, because like one of the biggest, you know, insults you could lob at somebody is like you're a war criminal, right? Correct. You know that yeah. that that that's um, this person might do all these things, but as long as they're not a war criminal, correct. <laughs> it's, it's, and of course, it's we've forgotten along the way that when 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 we um, 
when when we set up the Nuremberg trials after World War II, we were definitely trying war criminals, but it was mainly for being aggressive in the international system. You know, Adolf Hitler's henchmen were tried uh, and and killed mostly at you know at Nuremberg on the grounds that they initiated World War II. The trouble is that you know it's is is as much like not between law and something else is within legal priorities that now we denounce war criminals, but we mean those who have committed atrocity. The trouble is that when that's your focus, you could, you know, debug war by eliminating atrocity and leaving the aggression, which is what I think we've done in American war in our time. So uh, one last question that I have is that one of the things that comes up in the story, the legal story at least, right? And, 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 and um, thanks for that description of like, it's like the law as it operates in politics and society and culture, not sort of law per se, but sort of law in between other things. Um, it seems like there's, it made me think of two things. One is like completely abstract and one is much more down to earth. So the, the abstraction is it made me think of book one of the Republic, the Thrasymachus argument um, of justice is the advantage of the stronger, right? That that might makes right, right? right. Like, and, and so whatever sort of legal system we have, it's just to, you know, provide cover for whatever the powerful want to do, right? So that's right. one. And then the other one is that so in that in that sense, it's, it's kind of reflective of the earlier history that you talk about is that that the laws of war allow for brutality. Right. Um, and they sort of <laughs> it's all about letting loose the dogs of war. Right. And but but then the restraint one is also interesting because with the Geneva Conventions, this reminds me of a student I still remember from when I was your T.A., um, this kid, David, who had, who in the very first iteration of that class, which was around 2003, 2004, um, he had just come back. He was a veteran. He'd just come back from Iraq. And we were talking about the Geneva Conventions, and he and we talked about okay, so you know, what does this mean to you as a soldier? He's like, oh well, we have them in our packs and so on. But the way we interpret them is that if there's you know an Iraqi who's carrying like a bottle of Dasani water, that can be considered you know military material because it's a canteen, and we can shoot, right? right? right. You know, so. Again, even when the laws are supposed to be restraining, there's still so much room for for right. powerful actors to act with impunity. So yeah. one thing, you know, now that you're you're doing the study of law very carefully, do you what do you see? Is the law sort of simply window dressing for power politics, or does it have some sort of real constraining effects and you know right. shapes behavior in certain ways? It's a wonderful question. You know, so I, it, it is, it is a, 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 it's true that, um, the, the, the problem is, is, um, you know, so often not, um, that people break the law, but that the law is so permissive that they don't need to break it. Um, and in the laws of war, I mean, I think it's, it's really an important agenda to, kind of identify um, both that it's really permissive and that even so it it's it's so kind of misinterpreted especially by powerful states to make it even more permissive or or just you know um, like broken 
when push comes to shove. And clearly, all of that's very bad. Um, my, my book is is you know not about that, just because it's 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 a really important story that's been told before. My book is about what happens when you when in a sense you get what you wish for, and people start taking the law seriously. Because um, even to like start complaining about how permissive it is or the instances when it's broken, you have to explain the fact that the military are even paying lip service to it. Um, I think they've done far more than that. I mean, I think it was less true in the very early years of the war on terror, in part because John Yu kind of was representative of a, of a larger culture of, of just trying to lift any requirements or treating them as, you know, irrelevant. Um, the later part of the war on terror, when it was reinvented, you know, by liberals, um, seems to me significant because actually it was once again representative of, of a period in which there was there was a moralization of war. And um, it, the, in a sense, the new problem became that the law was more and more followed. And that gets to your, you know, great insight about whether, you know, we can be, in a sense, fooled by um, the the idea that um, you know justice is 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 real because it regularly turns out to be a way in which actually the powerful are still ruling just in in the name of uh, the good and the right, and of course that's absolutely true. And I think you know one one big part of I mean, my whole, you know, um, career is, is kind of saying in as many different ways as I can that it, it's not just evil we need to call out, but various forms of good, um, both because they're inadequate and because they rationalize a lot of, um, a lot of other evils. Still, I'm not going to, you know, take the Foucauldian or Thrasymachian line that that there's no such thing as morality and consequence. I do think, you know, we're still back in, in a situation where, you know, a, a, we can use those kinds of figures to gain insights so that we're not fooled by morality. And we, we make sure that we've got the right one and that we make sure that actors aren't using it to rationalize other evils. Um, because that's really, I think, what's happened in the humanization of American war, that we, we have had a moral victory. Um, it's just that it's one that served the most powerful state in world history that conceals the evil uh, of its ongoing war, which I think is is a greater evil than the moralization corrected. So it's it's holding out, you know, the prospect of a greater moralization than we've seen. And to do so, you have to believe that it's possible, which, you know, Foucault may not have, Thrasymachus definitely didn't, and but I think we should. Great. Um, I think that's a good place to stop and uh, possible possible way forward. Um, book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. 
Sam, thank you so much thank you, Sam. for coming on thank again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Great to see you both. So, again, everybody should really read this book. It's been heavily reviewed. Um, New Yorker, New York Times, a lot of different places have, have, have reviewed it, um, if you want to get a taste of it. Um, Sam's also written a bunch of smaller pieces that kind of preview the argument. Um, but really, the book itself is, is, is really worth spending the time with. Um, you know, it's kind of like contrary to everything you think. <laughs> I think that's what's kind of useful about it. Um, yeah. You know, you would think, you know, obviously like humanity, more humanity in war, net good, right? Right. Um, that's not not the the outcome of this argument. And it's, no, because it's a good war thing. is inhumane. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. Uh, and, tech, and, and, and technology at its rapid acceleration is just making killing more creative, but not necessarily more humane. It's making, yeah. more, you know, you do it from further away. Right. No, no, you're right. It's and like war at a distance allows for a video more game. of it. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. don't see the blood. You don't have to hear the screams. You don't have to, I mean, there's people droning from here and killing people across the sea. Yeah. Well, I think it's that's insane. the other, I mean, people have talked about this. That's one of the, you were talking about media stuff. Yeah. One of the outcomes of, Vietnam mm. was that the army realized that they can't have media coverage that they're not curating. Right. You know, so like they allowed for closer um, media contact than ever before during the Iraq war, but they were embedded with different units. And so <laughs> the reporters very safety is guaranteed by the people they're covering. So guess what? They're going to cover them pretty well. Oh, yeah. um, and, and so that's, you know, that's an interesting thing is that, it becomes very abstract. Um, and because it's abstract, it's becomes increasingly humane, right? That it's just like, we're not seeing, uh, or we're having to, th actually, it's more like this. We don't have to think about it, <laughs> mm. you know? Um, but anyway, yeah, um, great. good stuff. All right, well, we'll be back on maybe next week. Yeah. Yeah, now that we're officially kicking back into the fall, the, the fall, the fall the season summer. of politics and everything. Always, always yeah. a fun time. Yeah, I'm exactly. planning to talk about. Oh yep. my god. Yep. All right. Uh, no politics at the dinner table is produced by Amit Bakash. Um, some of our tunes by G. Baderon, our theme song by Alex Tepper. Go on our website, um, www.nopoliticsatthedinnertable.com to hear really phenomenal past episodes um see a bunch of book recommendations and um, most of our guests we, we put the work up on there so um and hopefully Ahmed will find some time to kick his newsletter back up yep it's coming it's back a, it's a good one all right we'll see you next week see you next week